Namo Tasha Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambu Tasha Homage to the Blessed Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One. Adanto suche do ye ola hudi san miao san putoshi. Ushang shen shen we miao ha. Bai chen wan je nan sao yu. Wo jin jen wan de shou chi. Yen je rulai chen shi yi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Shifu Shangren, Gawai Shushung, Nadia Amitofo, Venerable Master, Friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Uh, we're going to continue to look into the chapter of the Flower Adornment Sutra called the Ten Grounds Chapter. And this is a uh, chapter that talks about the Bodhisattva Path. Uh, it's February 20th. It's right there on the cusp of Aquarius and Pisces. And it's the new year, uh, Chinese and Vietnamese lunar calendar. So let's begin our lecture by chanting the name of the sutra and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, which you'll find right there. And uh, for those of you who have not yet turned your phasers to stun, please do so. You might want to click it off your phone, otherwise you'll have to dig for your pocket at just the wrong minute. So, word to the wise. Namo
please turn to page 86, 86, 87. Bashar We're on the very top of the page. We're going to start with our with the Chinese first, and then uh, read across and do the English. And we'll just start with the first the first stanza. To the right here, the disciples of the Buddha who first bring forth a wonderful precious thought such as this. Then transcend all the ordinary stages to enter the Buddha's realm of practice. Okay, these are verses, so let's see if we can get a, a, a sense of how it might go with the melody. First of all, <coughs> learning how not to sneeze into the microphone. Okay. Mm, something like this. Okay, try this. The disciples of the Buddha, the disciples of the Buddha, who first bring forth who first bring forth a wonderful precious thought such as this a wonderful precious thought such as this then transcend all the ordinary stages then transcend all the ordinary stages 
to enter the Buddha's realm of practice. To enter the Buddha's realm of practice. Mm. We're talking about bodhisattvas and uh, bodhisattvas you discover when you look into the into the Mahayana that um, this is a, a very precise definition. For example, there are said to be 53 bodhisattvas positions. Imagine, 53. And you can think of them as vertical, like there's a beginning, and there's first 10, and then 10, and then 10, and then 10. Uh, five tens and then two more or sometimes three depending on how you count um, or you can also think about it as uh, it doesn't have to be vertical you can think of it as a kind of an expanding um, the, the sutra however lays out 52 stages and the beginning bodhisattva doesn't know as much as the 50th bodhisattva, the 50th stage. So, um, there is definitely a process of learning. And a bodhisattva who they, the sutra talks about it a lot, they call it a chu fa xin pusa, a bodhisattva who has first fa xin, that's the key word, made that resolve, who has brought, literally brought forth the thought, who has made that resolve. And it's talking about the Bodhi resolve, the Putishin, that's the Bodhicitta sometimes, if you use Sanskrit. And this particular thought is prized. This is a big deal in the Sutra. If you are someone who can fa Putishin, make that Bodhi resolve, uh, the Sutra values you. You are uh, a model. You're someone who has done what the Sutra wants you to do, wants us to do. So, um, once you have Fa Putishin made that resolve, you are already on that path. You're on the Bodhisattva path. And they talk about it, think of a path like a road. McKinley Avenue, Bancroft Street, Martin Luther King Jr. Way, um, Highway 101, Highway 80. These are all paths that we know because we travel them getting around the Bay Area, getting around the city of Berkeley. But the Bodhisattva path is, uh, you could say it's uh, invisible, there's no geographical element for it. On the other hand, inside, it feels like a road. The actual experience of, of walking this path, the analogy is apt, you travel the path. It's very much like a road. That is to say, you put one foot in front of the other and you go forward. Or you stop and you don't. And you wait for a while while, while you get more courage or while the fog clears or you find your compass again and realize that, oh yeah, I was walking. I forgot. Um, so it's the experience of traveling the Bodhisattva path is very much like uh, the same kind of thing as if you were backpacking, as if you were on a foot, on a foot journey heading to the post office. Um, is if you were uh, walking instead of driving to the Safeway and coming home with the groceries. That's the experience of it. And one thing that people love about this particular sutra, the Avatamsaka, is there is a story. 
in the end of the sutra about a person, a recognizable person who actually does it. He actually, and it's a he in this case, he actually walks that long road and takes every step. And his journey is described. His name is Sudana. In Chinese it is Shan Sai Tongzi. Sudana is a pilgrim. He actually covers the ground. He walks every step and the sutra describes him, how what he does. It's, it's very wonderful pilgrimage. And uh, I have uh, been campaigning when I get the chance for the story of Sudana to be considered among the world's epic, epic literature. It's a, uh, it's a saga. It's an epic. Um, he's a hero. He travels. He encounters difficulties, setbacks, despair, encouragement, ultimate success. So, uh, very much as the rhyme of the ancient mariner is a saga, is an epic. Uh, likewise, the epic, the story of Sudana, should I think has every qualification to be an epic story. It's the Mahayana Buddhism's available epic literature. Why don't we know about it? Well, you had to read Sanskrit or Chinese or Japanese or Korean to know about it or Vietnamese. If you only read Western languages, you never would have met it until just recently. So now, happily, the story is in English. Two different translations. And um, while we are not specifically explaining that part of the sutra, we're we're talking about the ten grounds is positions number 40 to 50 of the Bodhisattva path. I said there are 53. We're the tip top. The ten grounds is the, not the tip top, but the top. There, in fact, more above it. But this particular section of the text is talking about the, the last ten steps of a Bodhisattva minus two or three, depending on how you count. So... So that's where we are in the whole sutra. And in that Ten Grounds chapter, we've covered the whole sections from one, from we're in the first ground, so in the, we're in the, the first of ten. And inside that first ground, there's a pattern that we found. And this pattern will be continued throughout all the other nine. And that's, first there's prose, there's a long description in grammatical prose. Then there's a repeat in verse. It comes back a second time, the same material, but it's in a, in a, on the page, it's in metered stanzas. So it goes bump, 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 like that. And it's very regular. So what do we read? We read, five characters, and there are each stanza has four times five, so every stanza is twenty characters. So the Chinese is metered twenty characters. It's a rhyme. It's a. It's actually not a rhyme. Take it back. It's metered. It goes bump, bump, bump the right number of times to be a verse. So that's the structure is first there's the prose then the same material returns in a verse form and we've been chanting it recently because clearly it was it's a meter verse because it's meant to be memorized it's meant to be brought out without reference to the text 
memorized, oral tradition. Teacher sings it for you with a melody, you chant it back to him and then go on, tell it to your disciples, your students, and recite it for the next 50 years after you learned it from your teacher. So that's the, the, the power of the verse form is it's way easier to remember when you have a, a meter to it. And uh, it's not hard to imagine that there was a melody because chanting usually has a melody. So that also helps it go in. And in the Chinese, um, and this is, mind you, this is all preamble. I haven't actually started it. So, but I wanted to tell the story. I had a wonderful experience in 1969. I know there are some of you in the room who weren't around in 1969. In 1969, I followed uh, Oberlin College at the time uh, to Taiwan to study Chinese for the summer. And before we got to our school in Taichung, we had three days in Taipei. And the professors um, invited Yu Guangzhong, and people you know, people, some of you may know who Yu Guangzhong is. He went down to National Sun Yat-sen University in Kaohsiung later, but at the time, he was just back from Temple Buell College in Colorado. And this, more information than we need to tell the story. But here was Yu Guangzhong, a famous poet. He's a real Chinese poet in the traditional line, but he wrote modern poetry. He brought in uh, romance, and he was a he really really appreciated his wife and his family. So he wrote uh, love poetry, and he wrote political poetry. Um, he was a pacifist. He didn't like war, and he used these traditional forms to write new material. And so our first three days in ta in Taiwan were in Taipei, and here was Professor Yu Guangzhong to meet the students from the Oberlin trip heading for. Donghai Dashi in in Taichung. So I'll never forget, Professor Yu met us, talked to us, and he chanted the ancient Shi forms. Yin Shi. Chinese poetry, the Chinese have had this love affair with poetic verse since history began. And among the basic five classics, there's something called the Shi Jing classic of poetry, also known as the Book of Songs. Arthur Wei translated it as the Book of Songs. So the Shi Jing has these verses that go back. There you can actually say they're, they don't have a date. They've been around. They are basically folk songs from the earliest, earliest times. Was it the Yin dynasty or the, the Shang dynasty or the Xia dynasty? Or was it the, the time of the legendary kings or was it the Duke of Zhou is lost in history, but the verses survived. And scholars are guessing at how the tunes went. The fun part is, you know, you can write down the characters. They change through different script styles, but they're still there. How did it sound? Ah, big question, lost in history. So uh, Professor Yu guessed. He, he gave the best guess because he studied it. And uh, so he chanted for us the old melody that scholars are guessing. There were no tape recorders. There was no MP3 players. There was no hard disk, you know, so that we don't know how they sounded. 
but their guest. And he did uh, the the poem that he chanted that I remember was about rats. Why? Because people were farmers, right? And you'd go with all the hard work growing rice or millet or barley. You put it in the storehouse and you have enough for the winter and you come out one cold winter day and discover that half of it's been eaten and there are rat turds on the other half, you know. And so pretty upset because you've lost half of your grain to the rats. And so this is a Chinese rats, European rats, Texas rats are the same. They like grain and they, they're hungry little creatures, you know. So, so the poem was about rats and it, he went, Lao Shu, Lao Shu, Mo Shu, Wagu. Tida da, Tida da. That was how Professor Yu chanted the earliest, you know. And as it basically was that was how the melody went, more or less. And, um, now, was it really that way? Who knows? But that's his best guess. And it was wonderful to hear the Shujing come forward with this, you know, ancient melody. So, when I'm trying to put some something to memorize on our uh, Huayanjing. Huayanjing is certainly as old as some of those old verses. So we go, That's what I'm basing it on, is what Professor Yu gave us for the Shijing, something like that. And if he were here, he would say, He would say, no, 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 that's not the way it's done. But, you know, I got round eyes, I'm a, you know, I have pasty skin, I'm trying my best. So, but happily, I recorded Professor Yu back in 1969, and I still have that tape. Um, it's changed a lot. The metallic oxides and all changed. But still, uh, this is what we're working on. When it comes to the English, how were Shakespearean sonnets first chanted? Anybody know? No, we don't. Shakespearean English was different. So what do we have that's old? Beowulf. How was Beowulf chanted? We don't know, right? Um, so essentially, we have to exercise our rugged, American, independent, creative spirit and make it up. Just make it up, right? What do we have as models? We have uh, things like um, in Cotswood Town, where I was born, there was a fair maid dwelling, made all the lads cry like a day, and her name was Barbary Allen. Right? We have child ballads. It's the oldest one of the oldest British-Scottish forms to come over. And what else do we have to work with? As we put our, put our verses into tunes, we have... Ooh-wee-ah-hey, ooh-wee-ah-ha, ooh-wee-ah-ha. 
Who's that? That's Joanne Shenandoah's prayer song. That's the Iroquois uh, song of, of creation. So that's old. Native American melodies have been here for at least 30,000 years. So that's old. And so we're trying to find a setting. So we go, the disciples of the Buddha who first bring forth a wonderful precious thought such as this, then transcend all the ordinary stages to enter the Buddha's realm of practice. So something like that. So that's just to say what we're doing as we open this text. We're trying to bring it over and plug it in to Western culture. And by golly, we have Western culture to plug it into. America hasn't even been here for three centuries and we're already we're messing up in serious ways. Uh, but there are roots to what we're doing that are absolutely there. So we have to dig them up, tap them, find the ones that ding, 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 ring true, and check it out. Yeah, yeah, that's real gold. Yeah, you know, and uh, then plug it in. So that's the experiment that's going on here. Not so simple. There's lots of stuff at, at work, lots of lots at stake, and uh, we hope to, if we're sincere, and use traditional techniques such as requesting dharma, being very formal in our approach, and opening the sutras with respect. Uh, we can hope that. If we just plug along long enough and put one foot in front of the other, bit by bit, we'll, we'll make it down the path. So that's what we're about here. Okay. Um, any feedback or input on that from folks? Any ideas or creativity would be most appreciated as we go. Okay, let's take a look here. The disciples of the Buddha who first bring forth a wonderful, precious thought such as this then transcend all the ordinary stages to enter the Buddha's realm of practice. What is it highlighting? It's highlighting a wonderful, precious thought. Clearly, that's it. The Chinese says, Ru shi miao bao xin. Such as this, wondrous, jeweled, precious, valuable xin thought. That xin is just a, a single thought. And it's a miao bao xin Wondrous meaning um, surprisingly good, surprisingly beyond expectation. Wondrous includes wonder, you know, wonder like, look at the stars. Who would have thought there were so many? Or, you know, uh, a Berkeley Bay Area spring morning. There's something very wonderful happening in the next month, which is Berkeley spring. We're protected by the bay here the way San Leandro is not well further down San Jose is not and uh, Napa is not we have somehow this big body of water here makes the weather that wafts across very special San Francisco does not have Berkeley Springs spring here is very gentle and fragrant the other day heading over to the post office I ran into a plum tree not literally, I walked under the plum tree, but the plum tree was in full, fragrant bloom. And, you know, I'm trying to keep samadhi as I'm walking along, and my nose went, what was that? <laughs> this plum fragrance just grabbed my nose, you know. 
because it's perfumed. You don't expect the air to be perfumed, but there it was in the air. I totally lost all samadhi. It was like, whoa, whoa, what's, and look around. Oh, it's right there, you know, and there are these snowy petals coming down, white petals. It's right over on Alston, just right there, one block down if you want. Right across from the police station. I love it. Right across from the police station, there's this incredible plum scent, and the tree is, nobody's caring for it. It hasn't been pruned in 20 years, and it's just all like that. It, it really needs care. But it's reliably producing this incredible fragrance. You think, how could air carry fragrance like that? Totally disturbs your serenity, you know, like attached to that. So, okay, so that's one of the wondrous things. Walking to the post office and your nose gets grabbed by the, the air carrying this incredible stimulating sensation for the nose is a plum smell in Berkeley in spring. So this wonderful precious thought has that same wonder. It's like, how can it be? Who would have thought that it would be like that? And it's bao, precious, jeweled. That word bao is the word for jewels. It's the word for precious. It's the word for um, valuable. It's um, precious because it's worth something. It's not worth less. It's not just ordinary. Can't buy it. Can't pay for it. Yet, if you recognize its value, it's priceless. Um, and it's a thought. These are two adjectives describing a thought. Miao, bao. Right? It's wondrous and it's valuable. And it's a thought. And what about it? It is ruxu. It's this way. A thought like this. What kind of thought? It's the bodhicitta. It's the thought for awakening. When Buddhist disciples, when disciples of the Buddha, literally children of the Buddha, first have this thought, when that thought pops into your mind, it's the chaofan way. Right then, they are no longer considered ordinary beings. Fan fu wei. Wei here is position, status, stage. What is the fanfu way? It's the position that is stuck here in birth and death. Meaning, life is about pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. If that's our description of what we're here to do, then fine, no big deal, no problem. That's all, most of the stories that we see portrayed in movies, TV, fiction, radio, our co-workers telling us it's all bound up in birth and death. It's trying to get the best deal we can and avoid being cheated, avoid being messed with, right? Dissed. That's birth and death passes in who you looking at, right? face, don't diss me, you know, and wanting a little bargain, trying to get a little better deal. That's the, the marketplace culture says that's where it's at. Okay, that is the fun fool way. That's the ordinary folks. And that's the story that we hear. Every now and then we hear about somebody who sees the world differently, who is not invested in that daily chase for the good stuff 
and fear of the bad stuff. Um, if we can just in one one interchange during the day reverse that we get the feeling what would it be like for example pick your significant other human relationship who would that be would that be boss would it be employee would it be colleague team worker would it be spouse who do you when you talk to humans who do you talk to most would it be your kids if in that one encounter during the day we are willing to do what Master Hua called take a loss. Just take one step back. In that next thought, we we leave the process of the ordinary pursuit of winning. I've got to win. Can't lose, right? Can't be a loser. Somebody who is willing to take a loss completely allows that to happen. I will take a loss of what face? I will let my face go in order to stay connected with that person. It's you know the the martial art called pushing hands in Taiji, the Taiji Chuan, there's this wonderful application of Taiji Chuan where you you have to connect with the person. You're standing with my foot is basically in your circle of weight and your foot is in my circle. So we're kind of right there and hand to hand. And then you start and each one is trying to push the other one over. It's called pushing hands, Tuisho. And the secret of Tuisho is as this person pushes, you yield and over they go. You win by yielding. As soon as you let go, they're off balance and they fall. Rarely do you win by pushing them over, right? And if they, if, if you're both pushing, then there's stasis. You have to stay con- connected in Tuisho. You can't, as soon as you pull away, it's, it, there's nothing. There's no way to win or lose. You see, so you stay connected, but you go around and there's, everyone is, as you push, you're being pushed and you yield and you yield, push back. And then at some point you sense more than you see. You sense that they have committed and you empty out and over they go. And then you win. So that's pushing hands. And the secret is staying connected. It's a wonderful martial art because it, keep, it allows you to develop this total sensitivity to where the other person is and this immediate willingness to empty. The key is to empty out your resistance, right? You don't resist, you empty, and you win by refusing to push. That's a perfect metaphor for what I'm saying. If today, tonight, tomorrow, the person you spend the most time with, when you connect with them, if there's conflict or if there's a question, if you say, well, let's do it your way, right? Oop, you emptied out. And if that person is used to you demanding your way, they're like, well, really? You mean it? You know, just by refusing to win, by taking a loss, 
emptying out, staying connected, you have a whole new, fresh perspective on your relationship. It's a new day in the relationship. And something that is ordinarily a source of trouble, what do you mean? You never listen to me. That's not what I meant. That kind of, right, that is the daily stuff. If you can just let it go and say, let's do it. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm convinced. Right? Suddenly there's this whole other place to work from. That's chao fan fu wei. Going beyond the ordinary. Quiet. What is the ordinary? I gotta win. Can't lose. I'll die before I let you win. Right? We do that, don't we? And it's like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And where does that leave you? Half dead and you still didn't win. Even if you win, you lose. Because the relationship is just... And birth and death. We go around again. That's it. And if you can say, no, I'm actually very interested in what was your thinking behind the idea? Well, I'd be happy to explain it to you. Are you really listening to me for the first time in about nine years? Well, you know, and you can then suddenly there's this deeper... And this, the person who before that was just somebody to, to, to defeat suddenly becomes this person with conditions and feelings and, you know. So I'm exaggerating. I'm sure your relationships are not as, as antagonistic as all that. But it's a good, if it happens to be your coworker or your boss or your employee, it's an amazing new beginning in what was just an ordinary back and forth. So, being able to take a loss is one of those qualities that changes fanfu to shusheng, to very special. Ordinary becomes wondrous and precious. Even to the point where I've had people tell me that just by practicing that yielding, they have this insight of that person who they are struggling with is actually there to cross them over. That person at the breakfast table becomes a bodhisattva who clearly is there to show you your faults and to help you grow. And it's like, suddenly it's like, whoa, I thought you were just kind of a pain in the neck, but in fact, you're a bodhisattva here. You see that person has a Buddha nature. They are very important to your spiritual progress. Suddenly it's like, oh my goodness. I've had people tell me that just just a flick of a thought and that person who is such a pain becomes priceless in your spiritual progress. So, amazing things can happen. So, Okay, so immediately they chao fan fu wei. They go beyond the ordinary position. Okay, they transcend all the ordinary stages, ru chu, and they enter in. And this this verb ru is a really uh, poignant, powerful verb. The place where Buddhas qing walk, travel. This is the verb for progress, for moving. It's actually literally a picture of two steps: left step. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. That's the word xing, they're X-I-N-G. 
you can see it. It's the the next to last word there, Xin. It's a left footprint and a right footprint traveling. Left step, right step. Left step, right step. So it becomes the verb for walking. And it also means practice. So it's progress that you make. Ru, for enter Buddha's whereby or that which practice place. It's the place they enter, the place where Buddha's practice. And enter, the verb here means they mm, engage in. They do. You could just say they do. They uh, engage in. They in mm, commence. You know, they're into it. They're into where Buddha's practice. Now, where do Buddha's practice? Where do they go? Um, I've heard Master Hua say the place where Buddha's practice is taking a loss all the time. Taking a loss all the time. And you go, ooh, boy. If I'm a business person, businessman, businesswoman, and I take a loss every time, I'll be out of business. And Shifu would respond by saying, that's not what I'm talking about. I don't mean when it comes to dollars and cents that you have to always uh, refuse to take a profit. No, that's not. it's not a marketplace value. Taking a loss all the time means that Buddhas don't invest in defending their ego. To invest in defending your ego means, number one, every encounter has me first. Right? And sometimes I'm that way. Right? Sometimes even a conversation... I got my identity on the line. Every conversation is like I have to reinforce my view of self. That's not where Buddha's practice. In fact, um, I've described in the past how a conversation with somebody who is who was not doing that Master Shren Hua, for example, the teacher, when you encountered him, there was very much a feeling of nobody there. Very uncanny to talk with someone who you had the feeling that there was, there was a mirror instead of a fixed identity. Somebody you had to deal with because they were really thorny and had lots of issues and not at all. There was a sense of there being this infinite responsiveness. Kind of like a photo, the way photo film used to be. Ready to capture any image. And if you were still in quiet, there was nothing reflected back. As soon as you moved, you saw yourself in the mirror. And depending on how you were presenting, there would be more or less response. Um, now that being said, other times, clearly when it was called on, called for, Master Hua would be the stern Chan master. Uh, other times he would be a playmate, a three-year-old playmate on the floor 
pushing the blocks around. Other times he would be Confucian scholar. You should see him face to face with George Bush Sr. on the campaign platform at Portsmouth Square in Chinatown. Right? Now, how would the the mirror respond? <laughs> Master Renhua said he was invited to represent Chinatown to welcome George Bush Sr. when he was campaigning with uh, see he was replacing Reagan who was Bush's running mate I forget George this George Sr. was there and Master Hua said now he said should there be a candidate running for the highest office in the land who can refuse to fight to be greedy to seek to be selfish, to pursue personal advantage, and to lie, such a candidate would certainly win the election as President of the United States. If there could be someone like that, you, sir, could win. You know, speaking right to George Bush with his finger in his face, you know, giving him Dharma advice of how to win the presidency. And he said, for example, if you could donate your salary to the people of this country, you would be elected. Can you do it? You know, and George is going, ha, he, he, ha, he, ha, ha, no, ha, ha, hmm, you know. And because, you know, George Bush Sr. has a lot of gears turning. For better or for worse, he's a very clever, uh, very you know, adaptable politician. He actually heard that. And uh, in his response to, we saw him put down his speech and respond to Scherfu's teaching to, and said, thank, thank you very much. That's a lot to think about, you know. He said he responded as a person uh, briefly and then went on to his, you know, his points. But um, I personally wrote the letter dictated by Master Shrenhua six months later after Bush was in the White House saying, you will recall that in Portsmouth Square in San Francisco, I suggested you donate your salary. What about it? <laughs> and uh, it was a longer letter than that, but Shrenhua challenged him and said, I meant what I said. If you want to, to actually this was four years later uh, when, he was being, when he was running against Clinton, Re-election, and Shrefu said, "If you want to be re-elected, don't take a salary. Give your, your." He said, "You're wealthy enough. It's not a question. You're not. You don't make that much as president. You know, if you want to show the people that your heart is really in, not fighting, not being greedy, not seeking." He said, "Do something significant. Donate your salary." Now, we had a. Uh, a Dharma friend in service, uh, not specifically to the White House, but not very far away, and it was John Zhu, Zhu Bingming, who was uh, Bush's appointee to the Department of Education. Um, and he had Bush's ear, because John Zhu was the highest ranking Chinese public servant at the time. And uh, Dr. Zhu personally delivered that letter to Bush and talked to him about it. And Bush said, you know, 
he said, this has somehow captured my imagination. I'm afraid Barbara won't go for it. He said. He said, if it weren't for my wife and my responsibilities, he said, I would do this because there's wisdom here. Interesting. That's a little known and unwritten story. Actually, it's been written down and published in our magazine. But Master Hua spoke directly to George Bush Sr.'s Buddha nature. And the man responded. Because to have the abbot in your face, you know, with all his virtue, Chinese Buddhist monks have been advising emperors from the very beginning. Behind his wife's skirts, absolutely. Well, you know, how could Barbara say, you can't, you know, no, it's good to get, donate your salary. You know, tough, that's tough. So, my point is to say, that's a face of the teacher. George Bush Sr. looked into that mirror and was startled to find somebody there who could teach him something, who caught his imagination. Um, so, that is a place where Buddha's practice, which is responding to people with wisdom, not with selfish desire. Master Shrenhua got nothing out of that encounter. He was not there to curry political favor, you know, to get a bargain. He was there to help George Bush Sr. take the next step away from me, away from personal benefit. So, interesting. Then you looked at him and he'd be on the rug playing with the three-year-old. Teaching the three-year-old how to give up the blocks, you know, and push the blocks back. And just amazing. So, where do Buddhas practice? Buddhas practice not pursuing personal agendas. Benefiting others. Taking a loss. Uh, at the time that Shurfu was on that platform, he was sick. He was not well. And he really, really wanted to stay home. But there was set up for the teaching and he went down to Portsmouth Square in the wind to uh, talk to George Bush Sr. So, that's a very interesting, interesting perspective on where did Buddha's practice? Buddha's practice not reinforcing the ego that when you, when you analyze it, you discover is just a way of looking. The ego, the me in the middle, is just a perspective. It's a construct. It's a thing that depends on conditions, conditions. It's always changing. So when we reinforce it, thought after thought, action after action, deal after deal, that's not where Buddha's practice. Okay, got that. So, uh, they enter the Buddha's realm of practice in thought after thought after making that thought most precious and wondrous which is we, we skipped over that what is that thought that Bodhi resolve is the thought that says I'm going to reach for my potential I'm going to try for the best that people can reach, which is wisdom and compassion. That's what I'm going to do. The Bodhi Resolve is just that. Bodhi Resolve says it's not waiting for somebody else. Buddhahood is not only hers, his, 
or bound up in some wooden image or bronze image or clay it's not Buddhahood is not in the statue Buddhahood is in my heart and I don't lack any tiny percentage of requirements to be a Buddha I've got it all if my body is a girl's body a woman's body an elder's body it's a boy's body a man's body an elder's body child, adult healthy, sick male or female doesn't matter the body I'm wearing inside I've got the potential for wisdom and compassion and I'm going to maximize it I'm going to grab that opportunity and cultivate it here's a very ordinary example can a square foot 12 by 12 a cubic foot 12 by 12 by 12 of topsoil in Berkeley, California grow corn and tomatoes and beans and squash? Yes. Does it matter where that cubic foot of topsoil or ground, let's see, that, that garden plot? Does it matter where in Berkeley? North Berkeley, East Berkeley, South Berkeley, West Berkeley? doesn't matter. Whether it's in Tilden Park or down near the Ohlone Shell Mount, doesn't matter. That square of ground, that garden plot, will grow crops all the same. Doesn't matter. It's got the same potential depending on how you use it and what you plant. It will grow perfect corn, beans, rice, squash, daisies, marigolds, whatever. It can grow redwoods in Berkeley, but, you know. So, that's the deal. Doesn't matter where that ground is. It's the same. Doesn't matter what body we're wearing. Our Buddha nature can become wise and compassionate now yours and mine the same that's the Bodhi resolve to realize that I can do that I can manifest that potential the trick is do you want to do you believe it a lot of people have this conditioning over the top of it that says I'm just a I'm only fill in the blank therefore I'm not qualified right I'm only a girl I'm only a high school graduate I'm only an employee I'm only the third daughter my JJ has a better chance than I do right because she's JJ she's always been the best mom always loved her more right I am May May and so right we have these conditions or worse I'm a failure I've been fired. Right? We have these thoughts. I failed my exams. I am all but dissertation. I'm ABD. So therefore, I'm not quite... Mm. We all have these kind of layers of thinking. The Bodhi resolve is the time when you say, baloney, it's not true. At heart, I'm no different. Just the same. If I cultivate it, my Buddha nature will grow crops. Right? Same. I just have to plant the seeds and cultivate it. And it works the same. No different. That's the Bodhi resolve. And it's just a thought, but it's a clear seeing thought. It's like a compass. It goes east. Right? You go east. I see it. That's east. 
My compass tells me that's east. I'm going. That's the Bodhi resolve. You say, Buddhahood, mine, not, it's hers too, but it's not that I don't have it. When you have that thought and then start going, then it's like, okay, we're on the path. We are Ru Fo So Xing Chu. We've entered the place where Buddhas walk. All Buddhas come from that, first from that thought. Okay, let's, let's move on here because there's more. Sheng Zai Ru Lai Jia, Zhong Zu Wu Xia Dian, Yu Fo Gong Ping Deng, Jue Cheng Wu Shang Jue. They are born within the thus come one's household. Their lineage has no flaws. They are the same as the Buddhas. They are certain to realize the highest state of Bodhi. Sheng Zai Ru Lai Jia, Zhong Zu Wu Xia Dian, they are born within the thus come one's household. Their lineage has no flaws. They are the same as the Buddhas and are certain to realize the highest state of Bodhi. Um, who is they? Bodhisattvas. These bodhisattvas are born within the thus come one's household. Okay, that's an analogy, right? Um, born is not born like with a body, but you could say reborn um, from the realms of samsara, birth and death, birth and death, that worldly thought of got to get the benefit, got to get the good stuff, got to get there first, got to beat all the others, got to win reborn from that into the thought of, you know, I am where I am today because of every step I've taken so far. My being right here today is no mistake. If I sit still and think about it, I can see how every decision I've made has brought me right here. It's nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine. That's a, an old hook song. Uh, and you say, okay, and furthermore, from the next step, I'm picking my direction. My next step determines where I go. Nobody's fault but mine. I can go anywhere I want. In fact, even though I am daughter of so-and-so, even though I am father of so-and-so, my next step is my own. I can be anywhere I want to be depending on where I walk. It's really my footsteps that take me there. I don't wait for grace from some deity and there's no wind pushing against me. I can walk right to the Buddha's household. That's what it means, that, that to be reborn. It means your next thought. You see what? What we call free will. Major philosophical point, right? Free will, does it exist? Is there such a thing as free will? Lots and lots and lots of discussion on that from Plato and Aristotle on, before them. The Buddha Dharma says free will happens in every thought, every next thought. There is a moment before we are committed to action where we are karma-free. As soon as we turn that into words, deeds, and thoughts, karma accrues 
and we're responsible for whatever we do. But there's always that moment of stillness. You can verify it if you sit still. Just sit still and watch that thought. And the thought comes up and it's karma-free until you act. And the, the key for meditators, you'll verify this, if you sit still and don't act, you see those thoughts, what do they do? Rise and fall. Rise. There's another one I didn't act on. Fall. They rise. Guess what? I didn't move. Fall. And that free will is a sense of potency, potentiality. Anything can come from that. It's a very liberating moment as you see thoughts rise and fall, thought after thought. So, that's what it means to be reborn within the Buddha's household. Master Hua would say, um, one thought of awakening is one thought of Buddhahood. Every thought awakened, every thought of Buddha. And then we act and all the 10,000 things arise. Oh yeah, well I'm just so and so, I'm just, that's all I am. And our, we tell our story, right? That story has all the conditions of failures and the obstacles, etc. But if we sit still and let those thoughts rise and fall, it's a different story. Their lineage has no flaws. All right, now, controversial line. What stories do we tell with lineage? Um, especially when we're talking about flaws. Well, um, this text was spoken originally in a society where the caste system ruled. Hard to imagine how from here from Berkeley, California, which is a place that most of the world associates with um, freedom, free speech. Um, Berkeley is a place that has impressed itself upon the world's consciousness as a place of uh, dialogue. You can express yourself here. There's room for almost any position. If you walk over to the Cal campus, stand in front of Sprawl Hall, right there on Sprawl Plaza, right by the fountain, there's this circle. It's in the concrete and there's a little bronze marker. It's usually stolen, but then it's replaced. And the bronze marker says that anyone who stands here is allowed and encouraged to express any point of view that they want. That's where Mario Savio stood on top of the police car and established that this was a place, university was a place where all opinions were welcome. He was very articulate, by the way. That's on YouTube if you want to check it out. Mario Savio's talk with a bullhorn on top of the police car. Powerful. YouTube is an amazing archive, among other things. Okay, so, free speech. Berkeley is one of those places. When you put that kind of freedom, use the word freedom, face-to-face with the caste system, 
you see there is a difference in culture. What is the caste system like? The caste system, to this day, sorry to say, to this day, is so strong in the consciousness of Indian society that, in the past, if you were a what's called an outcast, a chandala, a kshatya, a um, shudra, your shadow could not fall upon the body of the Vaishyas, the Kshatriyas, or the Brahmins. If your shadow fell upon the body of a non-outcast, it could never be washed clean. How much the less could you touch? How much the less could you shake hands with, do business with, marry anybody of another caste? That's how strong. These are human beings, but they were considered outcast. And we're talking millions and millions and millions of people over time. That's how strong it was. If you were a Brahman, the highest caste, your behavior was very strictly regulated. You, there were certain things you were not allowed to do. There were certain things you absolutely had to do to get up in the morning, to bathe, to welcome the sun. Brahmins, if they didn't do the right chants in the morning, the idea was the sun would not rise. That was in their life description. So, point is what? Strictly regulated. Strictly. Outcasts used to walk with a bell. They would ring the bell when they walked so that people who were not outcasts would cross the street to avoid the shadow falling on them. Ouch. Hard story, right? But that's rigidly stratified social structure. Um, things have changed to a large degree. There are... Uh, Buddhism was one of the key factors. Uh, the um, movement in India for Buddhists to become... for outcasts to become Buddhists and uh, very wonderful reforms happening but uh, by and large that consciousness is still there so lineage has another resonance if you look at it in the time when the Buddha spoke the sutra their lineage has no flaws now that being said look at what the Buddha did in his sangha this is one I think really important thing to recognize about the Buddha's Sangha was given the Indian context the Sangha was a place of incredible revolutionary lack of distinction the Buddha allowed outcasts into the Sangha with full status full authority no difference he went beyond the body and the lineage right to the Buddha nature. Unheard of. Actually impossible. But the Buddha did it. Now, we don't know whether within the Sangha, a Brahmin who shaved his head and put on the robe was happy to sit beside a Chandala who had shaved his head and put on the robe. We don't know how it went inside. 
seems to be, I haven't read about there being strife inside the Sangha once you left home. But those are deep, deep, deep cultural distinctions. The Buddha was revolutionary in his willingness to sweep all that aside, really do it, and call the Sangha, who sat first in the Sangha? Whoever left home first. Seniority replaced the caste. In secular, non-religious Indian society, outcasts did not sit in front of Brahmins, I guarantee. They did not sit in front of Kshatriyas, the warriors, the kings. They did not sit in front of the Vaishyas, the merchants. They sat over there, out of sight. Right? So that's what it was like. The Buddha said, come, come, come. Sit together, palms together in front of the Buddha, in front of the Dharma, and leave the triple realm. Leave suffering. That was his criteria. So powerful, right? That's the background for their lineage has no flaws. Yu They are the same as the Buddhas. Why? Because their potential for wisdom and compassion is absolutely the same. No different. Not at all different. Jie Chang Wu They will absolutely accomplish the supreme awakening. They are certain to realize the highest state of Jie, of awakening. How about that? Sociologically unheard of. The Buddha went right through all the distinctions. Okay, here we go. Check it out. Somebody um, where do we see? Where do we have equality? How about Department of Motor Vehicles? Do you want to open the door? Sam? Better to open that? Keep that open? You can see, yeah. Um, Department of Motor Vehicles, DMV. When was the last time you were in DMV? You've all had your driver's license for a long time, right? Did you ever go for a license plate or you need a new picture or something? When you go in the DMV, you realize that in the face of the laws of California, we are all equal, right? DMV is one of those places where you really do get humbled. You get in line, you take a number, right? Doesn't matter if you drove up in a Bentley, if you drove up in a Lexus, if you walked over, you get in line to get your license. And the, the clerk will be as impartially rude to you as she is to everyone, right? It's hard to work in the DMV. I have total sympathy with those folks behind the counter. Oh my goodness. And I would recommend next time you're in the DMV, if that clerk is rude to you, give him or her a big smile and say, thank you. You'll see somebody's face just crack. Right? They have a very tough time communicating. You know, in the city, in the Oakland school districts, we have 200 languages that the Oakland school district serves. The DMV has to deal with all those folks who come in wanting to get on the highway, get on the road. Oh, tough job. So we are all equal in the eyes of the DMV. Absolutely. So there's an example. Doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. There are places, however, if you drive up to, let's say, the St. Francis Hotel over on Knob Hill, and you drive up in a Ford Falcon, 
you know, with rusted out bumpers and stuff, the concierge is going to look at you with a question. If you walk up with ripped out blue jeans and, you know, you're not going to get the same treatment as if you drive up in a stretch limousine and you get out in a black suit and tie. You know, if you get out in evening wear, tuxedo, you're going to get different treatment, right? So we do have caste systems based on very superficial stuff. What you wear, what you drive, right? The Buddha is saying in the eyes of the Buddha, no different. Everybody has the potential for wisdom and compassion. Okay. Um, let's do the next one and then we'll have done three today. Okay. Cai sheng ru shi xin ji de ru chu di zhi le bu ke dong pi ru da shan wang Upon experiencing thoughts such as these, they come to enter the first ground. Their will and delights are immovable, firm as the great king of mountains. Cai sheng ru shi xin ji de ru chu di zhi le bu ke dong Upon experiencing thoughts such as these, they come to enter the first ground. Their will and delights are immovable, firm as the great king of mountains. We have some images here. Um, upon experiencing thoughts such as these, meaning the Bodhi resolve, they enter the first ground. They are ready to start step number 41, right? First of the ten grounds. Their will and delights are immovable. Zhi, le. Will here means willpower, not, not free will, but their kind of their um, resolution, their force du frappe in French, the way they come forward, their, their resolve and what they enjoy are can't be moved like what? Like Da Shan Wang, the big mountain king, the royal king of mountains, which is what? In the Buddhist lexicon, the Da Shan Wang, the big king of mountains, is called Mount Sumeru. Sumeru is, a, is, some people say, a mythical mountain. That is to say, uh, it exists in legend and in literature. But it's hard to find. National Geographic has never done a story on Mount Sumeru. We don't have pictures of Mount Sumeru in the morning, like Mount Fuji or Mount, um, Mount Washington. Um, but it exists in a legendary way as... Uh, with a very detailed description of what Mount Sumeru is. It's called Miao Gao Shan, Wonderfully Tall Mountain, a mountain called Wondrous Tall. And there are heavens that exist on the side of it and on the top of it with gods there and goddesses. Um, in the Buddhist literature, Mount Sumeru plays a big part. There's lots of, lots of stories. It is the background for a lot, a lot, a lot of... Uh, the, the Buddhist uh, tales. 
the Buddha traveled at Mount Sumeru to speak Dharma. In fact, the Avatamsaka Sutra was spoken at various places on Mount Sumeru. Um, for those people who read Western mythology, if you read Edith Hamilton, Greek mythology, right, you know about the Titans. The Titans are always challenging the gods for power on Mount Olympus. Warfare. There's warfare in the heavens in Edith Hamilton's description of Greek mythology. Likewise, the Ashuras climb up to Mount Sumeru to try to fight for possession of the second level of heavens, which is called the, the Triastremsha, heaven, the heaven of the 33 gods. They're always fighting. And Chakra, Lord Chakra, is there to repel the gods, or the, the, the Asuras, who, like the Titans, come up to fight. And our sutra here talks about that warfare. It's amazing how Mount Sumeru is a battlefield when the Asuras come up to fight. Uh, it goes into detail, fascinating detail. King, uh, uh, King, let's see here. Um, the, uh, I'm, I want to say King Yama. It's not King Yama. Uh, the uh, king, the he's called the Yuhuang Dadi also. The Jade Emperor on Mount Sumeru can transform. He uses psychic powers to become a fierce warrior, transformer-like, right? If you think of pop culture and transformers, he's, he's, he comes out with 50 hands and a thousand heads and every head is sending thunderbolts out his eyes and his, his many hands are holding Vajra pestles that can smash all the Asuras. And it's just completely a mirage, a transformation. But the Asuras don't know that. They see king, the, the king of the gods coming down, bearing down on them alone. He has the power to transform so that every Ashura warrior sees only that the king of heaven is coming for him to smash him, into, to, pulver, to pulverize him into bits. And it's very terrifying and they run and they retreat. Um, that's the, how the sutra describes the warfare between the gods of the Tri-Streamsha heaven and the Ashuras. So it's like, wow, that all happens on Mount Sumeru. Um, so there's a whole lot more to say about that mountain. Um, it's one of the fascinating features of the sutras is they describe a spiritual geography. There's lots and lots of material and stories based upon this, say, legendary, that's not really a good word, mythological, it's not, doesn't have it. They say, as soon as anyone opens their spiritual vision, what are called the five eyes. Mount Sumeru is right there in the center of the world, and it always has been. It's just that we don't see it with our duality and our self in the middle. So Mount Sumeru is the, the king of mountains, and it's, uh, it's really there to be seen once you uh, transcend self and others. So that's just, a, we can file that away and test it out. And if anybody opens their spiritual vision and sees Mount Sumeru, please take a picture and bring it back. We'll 
definitely post it on our blog and Mount Sumeru identified. Right? Yeah, finally. Okay, so we'll start on paragraph on stanza number four um, next week as we get into the description of what these bodhisattvas do and how they how they feel in the first ground. We can uh, first dedicate merit. Please send a wish. Um, has Haiti vanished from the news? Almost completely. Anybody hear anything about Haiti this week? Not much. Hear a lot about Vancouver? Mm. Has the suffering ended in Haiti? There are places where the food has not even reached. Haiti is suffering hugely. I saw uh, one story this week, rain, starting to rain in Haiti, which compounds the misery. But it's no longer hot news, and so our press's focus has gone somewhere else. But those folks are, if anything, suffering more. So if we dedicate merit, I'm sure it would be most appreciated. Yeah. Mm-hmm.